Good morning, church. Uh, so, this is kind of a standalone. Um, we've finished the book of Habakkuk, uh, which was uh, the series we've been doing for the last couple of weeks. And this is kind of a loose follow-up from my previous talk a couple of weeks ago, which I realize won't be helpful for you if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, yeah, Becca's just plugged the podcast, so you can always catch it there. Uh, but also, if you want the, like, I don't know, uh, the kind of, like, elevator pitch, the, f- the five-second summary, uh, Habakkuk is a book where um, the prophet is praying, lamenting, petitioning uh, because of his circumstances. Uh, he is not in a great situation. Uh, Jerusalem is about to be attacked by the Babylonians, um, and he's crying out to God, um, and he gets to a place at the end of the book where he uh, realizes that even though his circumstances may not change, even though there is pain and suffering, uh, he can still trust in his God um, and he can still rejoice, uh, kind of despite all the suffering that he is going through. So I kind of landed with a plea uh, that you would make the Psalms your prayer language. Um, and that's kind of where I'm going to pick up this morning. Um, <clears throat> So to do that, I'm going to actually start off by reading the words of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, um, which are, hopefully, makes sense, the first two Psalms in the book of Psalms. Um, and yeah, I want to uh, read them. Uh, they're poetry, so I realize some people, uh, you know, quite enjoy poetry, uh, kind of the vivid description, kind of the metaphor, the imagery. Maybe some people struggle with poetry a bit more, um, you know, because it kind of maybe doesn't tell you, you know, like a recipe of what's on the tin. You kind of have to engage your imagination a little bit more. Uh, but kind of whatever uh, feelings you have towards poetry, I just encourage you kind of just to kind of take a minute, uh, listen to the words as I'm reading them, you know, they're the words, um, the inspired words of God, um, and just kind of think about the imagery, think about the metaphors, think about what the psalmist is trying to convey. So I'm going to read. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on this law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and their rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them like pieces, uh, to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.
So if my plea a couple of weeks ago was to use uh, the Psalms as your prayer language, you know, there's nothing new about this, nothing innovative, but I do think there is something powerful in praying the words inspired by the Spirit of God back to God. It gives us a language to lament, uh, a language of praise. Uh, it gives us imagery and metaphor to wrestle with doubt and suffering and to proclaim that the Lord is in his holy temple. Uh, you know, through the beauty of this poetry, through this art, we're able to kind of step into the presence of God. So I just want to kind of think about the Psalms in slightly fuller detail. And when I say that, I don't mean uh, kind of looking at all 150 Psalms in individual detail. You know, they're all individually beautifully crafted, um, nor looking at how they all 150 fit together, how they've been arranged, um, although they do have a real specific arrangement so that it tells the entire uh story of the uh, the Bible, basically, from the garden through to kind of an expectant hope about one that will come to deliver the people. Uh, instead, I want to focus on these two Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, that I've just read, uh, because I believe that they've kind of been chosen and really deliberately placed at the start of this collection of poems, uh, and they're kind of like two pillars that serve as this kind of entrance into the book of Psalms. Um, uh, commentators have often kind of described the Psalms as like a literary temple, um, and essentially what they mean is that, uh, you know, the physical temple in Jerusalem had at this space, you know, been the physical space where a faithful Israelite would go um, to be in the presence of God and to be immersed in the story of God's kingdom. Uh, and, you know, to convey the sense that this physical temple in Jerusalem was that space where human space and God's space overlapped. Uh, art and imagery was often used from the Garden of Eden, so beautiful trees and stuff like that. Uh, priests would also kind of perform sacred rituals. Songs would be sung and prayer said. And all of these were kind of designed to proclaim that the God rules from this mountain in Jerusalem. So all this meant that when uh, Jerusalem was sacked and burnt and plundered and the physical temple destroyed, the Israelites then began to collect and arrange the Psalms and this arrangement uh, and this book became like a, a, a literary temple, a virtual temple. Uh, because there was no longer a specific physical location uh, to go to, to be in the presence of God. Um, so the place to go to meet with God, to hear the entire biblical story uh, sung through poetry was the book of Psalms. Essentially, it's like a prayer book for exiles. And Psalm 1 and 2 are like the gates we use to step into this literary temple. Uh, you know, they're like pre-prayers to the book of uh, prayer. Uh, so Psalm 1 is about calling us to attention. Uh, you know, it's a sense of kind of gathering our distractive lives and concentrating our energies um, on listening. You know, it's calm and quiet. Uh, Psalm 2 is kind of much more lively and vigorous. I don't know if you kind of noticed the key change there. Um, it, and it's kind of pointing forward as a revelation of God's chosen one, his son, who will be personally involved in the world, bringing justice uh, and setting things to right. Um, you know, so Psalm 2, in a sense, calls us to adoration of uh, the son, the one to come. And I think... I think that as we stand at the entrance to this literary temple, as we kind of contemplate Psalms 1 and 2, uh, we find ourselves contemplating what sort of people we want to be. And often uh, when we have this kind of contemplation uh, depicted in the story of the Bible, uh, there will be a kind of um, uh, imagery or story about a tree. Um, and this is probably a familiar image for you. Uh, you know, trees of decision are a recurring theme in the Bible. Um, and we're also asked to make a choice here at the start of the Psalms. What kind of people are we going to be? What kind of tr decision are we going to make at this tree? Are we going to be people that choose uh, the way of the tree of life? Uh, a way that brings life to others? 
or people that are going to choose to do what's right in our own eyes, uh, which leads to kind of broken relationships, violence, and death. That probably sounds familiar. It's the same decision Adam and Eve faced in the first pages of the Bible. In the book of Genesis, God placed humanity in the garden, and the garden was the kind of uh, original temple, the original space where human space and God's space overlapped. The Holy of Holies, um, it was where you could be right in the presence of God. And that, right in the presence of God, is where the tree of life is. And this tree represents God's own life and creative power that's made available to others. God's first command to all humans is to eat from all the trees of the garden, including that tree of life. And think about that for a moment. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve asked to eat God's own life. And we're told that eating the meal, eating from this tree of life, eating God's own life, transforms the one who eats it. In the words of the story, it leads to eternal life. But we know the story. In the garden, the humans also encounter another tree, a false tree of life. And that tree represents taking the authority to do what is good in our own eyes, serve our own self-interest. We know it as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And though the man and the woman could eat of any tree in the garden, they chose instead to eat of this tree. They chose to define good and evil in their own terms. They chose death, not life. And in doing, they were exiled from the presence of God, exiled from the garden. And the words of Psalm 1 take us back to that garden. The Garden of Eden, where the river that flows through it, watering the whole garden and bringing life to the whole earth. And we get this portrait of hope of someone, an upright human who delights in God's wisdom, the instruction of the law, the Torah, The person is like a tree of life in that garden temple, and they eternally blossom because they're planted in the river of God's life. Which should prompt the question in us, you know, who is this upright individual supposed to be? Is there any way for those of us who have been exiled from God's presence, exiled from the garden, to get back to God's life? So whenever we encounter these trees throughout the biblical story, we're supposed to be reminded of this choice in the garden between the tree of life and a false tree of life. Ever since that first failure, we've been waiting for someone able to resist the grip of death, waiting for someone to choose life. Of course, generation after generation, people continue to turn away from God. They turn away from receiving life and instead choose idols. They choose gods of their own making. And often in kind of like the history of Israel, these idols were placed on tall hills and kind of under every spreading tree. Uh, And some of these idols were literally ornate wooden poles that were carved to look like beautiful trees. They were false trees of life. And so when time and time again the people of Israel chose to reject life and instead chose to redefine good and evil in their own terms for their own self-interest, they, that tr- the choice led to kind of self-destruction, exile, and death. So is there any way for us back to that tree of life? Let's go back to the story of Genesis. After humanity's rebellion, after eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, God makes a promise. It's a promise that one day a future human, the seed of the woman, would come to defeat evil and restore the world. There is a prophecy about one who will strike the head of the snake and crush him, while at the same time being bitten by the snake. That's what Psalm 2 is about. It's God's promise that a king would come from the line of David, 
He will be called the Son of God, the Messiah. God appoints him to bring justice to human evil and to restore God's kingdom and peace over the nations. That's where Jesus comes in. When Jesus goes down to the Jordan River and is baptized, he goes into the waters and comes out. And the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe a voice from heaven declaring, this is my son. That's a direct line from Psalm 2. The Gospels describe how when Jesus the Messiah came, he demonstrated perfect obedience to God. He chose life rather than choosing to define what was good or evil for his own self-interest. And Jesus came to announce that God's eternal life was available once again through him. The Gospel of John is explicit in showing that Jesus thought of himself essentially as a new tree of life. Jesus claimed to be the vine that brings God life into the world. Jesus invited people to eat from him. Jesus was inviting people to trust him and to be transformed by his life. But at the same time, Jesus also exposed how much we all love false trees of life. Jesus presented the people between a new choice, between life or death. A new opportunity to choose life in all its fruitful abundance, or to do what seemed right in our own eyes. And not only did the people choose to do what was right in their own eyes, they chose death, they chose to kill the very one who came to bring life. And so Jesus was led up to the top of a hill, carrying wood for the sacrifice on his shoulders, and he dies upon a tree. But Jesus had promised his followers that he was a seed of God's life that would die in the ground, but then would grow into a plant that would bear much fruit. And we're given the same choice. We can either love this life and cling to it, and so ultimately choose death, or we can choose eternal life. We can choose to eat from Jesus, the new tree of life. But this is a choice to allow our old way of being human to die. Jesus said he is the vine and we are his branches. So not only do we have a choice to eat from Jesus, the new tree of life, we're invited to become part of this tree of life, to help produce its fruit so that Jesus' life and his love can spread through us to others. And so here's my purpose this morning. Not that we can learn something new, maybe interesting about biblical poetry or trees in the Bible. It's so we can take a moment to pause by a tree of decision and ask ourselves what it is we really want. Who is it we really want to be? Are we people that are going to choose to remain in Jesus' love? Are we people who choose to keep Jesus' commands and in doing so remain in his love? Are we people that choose to allow Jesus' words to remain in us so that we can ask for whatever we wish and it will be done for us? Are we people who will bear much fruit, lasting fruit to the Father's glory? Are we people who will show ourselves to be his disciples? That's a choice to be people from the vine, tree people, people of the word of God, from the body and blood of Christ, for the tireless work of the Spirit, new in us every morning to keep producing this fruit. Uh, this is what the Gospel of John calls abiding. This is people who enjoy a conscience union with Christ, people who choose to remain in the vine. The alternative we're given is to be a branch that is thrown away and withers, or like the image in Psalm 1, like chaff in the wind. 
when I talked a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, reading the Psalms was about a lifetime of slow rereading and reflection. Through repetition, these prayers and laments and songs of praise are meant to become our own. Through them, we learn to live by God's wisdom and to seek God's justice in the world. Through them, we wait in hope for the return of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. In other words, sinking our roots deep into the Psalms, deep into the instruction of the Lord and his wisdom is about our spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is not about striving in our own power to please God. But at the same time, abiding is not something that is passive. It is an active choice. It's about choosing life. It's about choosing intimacy with the one from whom is all life, all love, all creativity. Choosing the one who first chose us. The one who first loved us. The call in Jesus, his call to abide, is a call to remain in him. It is not a call to passivity. Everyone will be spiritually formed. We were all shaped by the culture around us, our families we were born into, the choices and decisions were made, the communities we're a part of, how we spend our time. And non-choice is a choice. Passivity just means that we're allowing ourselves to be changed mindlessly by the culture around us. That's the individual in Psalm 1, the one who first walks, then stands, then sits. That's the spiritual formation of the world. It's the opposite of movement. It's stagnation. It's not the upward call of God in Christ. And I think this is reflected in a proverb that I love at the moment. I'm returning to again and again to meditate on like we're asked to in Psalm 1. It says this. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. And as I've been thinking on it, here's what I think it means. Think of any successful relationship. As you spend time with someone you love, you discover more about them, more about their preferences, more about their longings and their personality. You are searching out a matter, searching out the character of the other person. And if you're in a relationship, you probably just don't instantly reveal everything about yourself all at once. Your preferences, your longings, your personality are revealed slowly over time as you get to know each other, layer by layer. When you meet someone and you want to know more about them, you are delighted to search out a matter. You actively choose to spend time with each other. You want to hear their stories and you want to share your stories. You want to share memories and talk about what you love. You want to know their hopes, what their plans are for the future. And that's what this proverb, I think, is getting at. There are new things about God to discover. The character of God and the study of the fullness of who Jesus is is something so profound that even studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust its riches. And we're asked to be people whose delight is in intimacy with Jesus, people whose deepest desire is to search out his character people who are so soaked in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for us, people so rooted in that love that through deepening intimacy, we learn more about the character of God, and that does something transformative to our own characters. We become transformed, freed from the bondage of living from ourselves, people who choose life and to bring life to others. 
There isn't any secret knowledge. Everything that's needed for salvation is clearly evident in the Gospels. But when we choose to abide, when we choose to remain in intimacy, when the thing we most desire is intimacy with Jesus, understanding Jesus and being changed by him should be the work of our lives. We are searching out a matter, and that search is going to do something amazing in our lives. And of course, here's the thing. Intimacy takes a lifetime. What one writer called obedience, or a long obedience in the same direction. It's not instant. That's so hard, I think, to hear in our culture of instant consumption and gratification. But the work of abiding, the work of intimacy is slow. It takes a lifetime. And perhaps the only thing we like to hear less than acknowledgement that our spiritual formation will be slow is that in many instances it's through suffering. If we constantly ignore pain and suffering, we cut ourselves up from the opportunity to experience God showing up in the ways he promises to, from a God who saves us by dying for us. God has never, never promised to solve all our problems. He's never promised to answer all our questions. And yet, God has the words of eternal life. Where else should we go? When I run, occasionally, <laughs> uh, and when I run like long distances, what I aim for is a runner's negative splits. Essentially, what this means is that I want my pace per mile or per kilometer during the second half of my race to be faster than my initial pace per mile at the start of the race. So I have to pace myself. I have to run within myself early into the race. And then because of my training, because of the distances I put in week after week, I should have enough energy left over that I can kick up and even speed up as I progress in the run. If spiritual formation is about long obedience in the same direction, it is a long distance event. If it takes time. And therefore, I think we are called to pacing in our spiritual formation, not passivity. We should run in a manner with a goal in mind that we can turn out mile after mile until we reach a point in our race when we realize that, yes, I am being filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, there is more left in the tank. We can kick things up a gear. We can increase our pace. As we spend time in the presence of Jesus, as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we will find that our capacity to operate in that same power increases. We will find that we become more fully who we're made to be filled with more life and more able to operate in this life, bringing that same spirit to those around us. So with that in mind, I just want to land with two simple practices. We must carve out intentional space to be with Jesus, to spend time with him, to abide. Yes, spiritual formation is a slow work. Yes, it is a lifetime process. Yes, it is about pacing rather than producing fruit in our own power, but it is not about passivity. The more we choose to spend time with Jesus, the more we will grow in intimacy and the more quickly we will grow in maturity. And secondly, I think the call is to intercede. When Jesus talks about being in the vine and us the branches, he says this, whatever you ask for in my name will be done. That always blows my mind. The same power that resurrected Jesus is at work in us and through us and his plans. His plans will not be thwarted. 
the same Jesus who spent his time on earth resting with God in prayer, the same Jesus who had a lifetime of intercession is the same Jesus who we are told right now is at the right hand of the Father interceding. And we are told that his spirit is interceding through us when we make ourselves available to join him in intercession for his purposes in the world. What a promise. And so I think we can pray and we can wait remaining in Jesus with confident assurance that he will do what he has said he will do. We can be tree people because at the center of history is a tree, the cross. And because of that cross, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are told in the words of Psalm 2 that the nations will be his inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. And so the story of the Bible ends with a new garden and a new tree of life at its center. And we're told that this tree provides healing and life for whoever chooses to eat from it. That's our future. So now we're learning to live by faith in God's wisdom, to seek God's justice. We choose the way of Christ and his abundant life. We're allowing the working of the Holy Spirit to pace ourselves to become more like the one we love as we grow in knowledge and in intimacy with him, as we put our roots deep into the water of eternal life.